Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. Why did Hillary Clinton, of all the things that she could have used to uh, go after Donald Trump, why did Hillary Clinton choose Russia as the issue for her opposition research project with Christopher Steele? And we got that answer very early on. We, I interviewed some Clinton people who said, listen, our goal was to neutralize Russia as an issue in the campaign. And I asked, well, why? And they said, well, because it was their biggest liability. My guest coming up is John Solomon, the award-winning investigative journalist and co-author with Seamus Bruner of the gripping and engrossing new book, Fallout, Nuclear Bribes, Russian Spies, and the Washington Lies that Enriched the Clintons and Biden Dynasties. The scandal for Donald Trump wasn't that the Russians tried to do what they do in every election. It was the allegation, now disproven, that Carter Page and Paul Manafort and others had tried to coordinate the effort to hijack the election. So the Russians and Donald Trump's campaign was in a conspiracy. That was the primary allegation of the Christopher Steele memo. That has been thoroughly debunked. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific economic, political, and social upheaval, Life on Planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. John Solomon is a Fox News contributor, editor-in-chief of Just the News, and a former executive editor at the Washington Times. Fallout, the book he co-authored with Seamus Bruner, is described by President Trump as a must-buy. Now, if you are tempted to describe the co-authors as partisan political hacks, here's a sneak preview of what John Solomon tells me in my interview coming up. One of my seminal series of stories that have won lots of accolades over the years and lots of awards was the work I did after 9-11, showing how the George W. Bush administration failed to connect the dots inside the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, before 9-11. Why was the basketball court all wet? Because the players kept dribbling on it. The dad joke. <laughs> Corny, groan-worthy, but also one of the simplest ways to share a moment with your kids. What did the buffalo say when he dropped his son off for school? Bye, son. <laughs> so take a moment to make your kid laugh, because dad jokes rule. Make your kid laugh today. Go to fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Well, it's just grand to have you back. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne, and my guest is the energetic, enterprising, and award-winning journalist, John Solomon. He co-authored the just-released Fallout with Seamus Bruner. It is rich in amazing details. From claims in the advanced publicity notes, Joe Biden's Ukraine energy advisor secretly lobbied for Russian nuclear deals, how China, Russia and Iran got sweetheart nuclear deals, while Obama and Biden Inc. cashed in. Now before we get to the interview, if you have been following, John Solomon wrote on his Just the News about how major Republicans who led the effort to expose FBI abuses in the Russian collusion probe say newly declassified memos 
show agents improperly spied on candidate Donald Trump in 2016, recording his answers and actions during counterintelligence briefings. According to John Solomon's story, it's up on his website. I first asked John for background on his new book with Seamus Bruner, Fallout, Nuclear Bribes, Russian Spies, and the Washington Lies That Enriched the Clinton and Biden Dynasties. Well, for much of the time from March 2017 to January of this year, I broke a lot of the stories that unraveled the Russia collusion investigation and, and exposed it for what it was, which was it was a political dirty trick masquerading as a counterintelligence investigation. The FBI knew all along that it didn't have any evidence, and yet it kept going further and further down that rabbit hole trying to, to prove something that uh, wasn't there. And, uh, and so when we were done, I had told the story very episodically story here, story there, television appearance here, FOIA document release here. And I wanted to step back and tell the whole story chronologically and, uh, and to add a lot of new details. So we put FOIAs in. We interviewed about 100 people. Uh, we went through about 10,000 pages of declassified documents. And then we sat down to answer, uh, to tell the story in a, in a uniform way and to answer what I think were the, the, the single most unanswered uh, questions from the uh, scandal. And that was, most often, why? Why did Hillary Clinton, of all the things that she could have used to uh, go after Donald Trump, why did Hillary Clinton choose Russia as the issue for her opposition research project with Christopher Steele? And we got that answer very early on. We, I interviewed some Clinton people who said, listen, our goal was to neutralize Russia as an issue in the campaign. And I asked, well, why? And they said, well, because it was their biggest liability. And eventually my co-author, Seamus Bruner, going through all the documents we had, found a poll and it was done in the summer of 2015. It was done secretly by the Clinton campaign. So it's one of those insider polls that the campaign uses to guide its strategy. And it looked at all the issues in Hillary Clinton's life that were uh, potentially negative. The Whitewater scandal, Rose Law Firm billing, Vince Foster suicide, uh, the Benghazi uh, tragedy, uh, even the email scandal that James Comey and the FBI were working on. And none of those rated as high or as, as big an impediment to Hillary Clinton's election as the Clinton cash book and the findings that uh, the Clinton family had cashed in on the failed Russia reboot policy that the Obama administration had uh, launched in 2009. So the, the, Clinton, uh, the Obama-Clinton-Biden team tried to reboot with re relations with Russia. They gave away billions of dollars of nuclear fuel contracts. Uranium helped Russia build its own Silicon Valley. And then Vladimir Putin pulled the rug out from underneath President Obama and invaded Ukraine in the Crimea region in 2014. But before that happened, lots of Democrats, particularly Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, through their foundation and Hill, uh, Bill Clinton's speaking engagements, they had collected millions of dollars from the Russians. And so that idea that government was for sale or there was pay-to-play going on, that showed up as the number one political liability blocking Hillary Clinton's path to the presidency. 53% of the respondents in this secret survey uh, listed that as the number one reason they might not uh, vote for Hillary Clinton. So they set out to neutralize that issue, scare Republicans off so they wouldn't use Russia as a political weapon. And so they had to find dirt on any Republican they could find. It just so happened that Donald Trump uh, surprised everybody, secured the nomination, and they, they built the Russia case against him. And that's how this whole scandal started. You mentioned the Steele dossier and the Russian hoax scandal. Has that been completely discredited by now? 
Well, there's two things, right? There, are, there, there's not any doubt. Nor, and, and we say emphatically in the book, there's no doubt that the Russians tried to meddle in the election, as they have in many other elections before. They bought Facebook ads trying to suppress vote. They hacked uh, some emails, particularly John Podesta's email account. But the the scandal for Donald Trump wasn't that the Russians tried to do what they do in every election. It was the allegation, now disproven, that Carter Page and Paul Manafort and others had tried to coordinate the effort to hijack the election. So the Russians and Donald Trump's campaign was in a conspiracy. That was the primary allegation of the Christopher Steele memo. That has been thoroughly debunked. So the, it will never be debunked. It, it, it's accepted fact that the Russians tried to meddle in the 2016 election. They're trying to meddle in the 2020 election. They tried to meddle in the 2012 election. That is accepted fact. But the idea that Donald Trump was engaged in a conspiracy with Vladimir Putin, which was the most explosive allegation and the primary reason to investigate the president, that has been thoroughly debunked by the inspector general, by the intelligence community. And as we know, Mueller, uh, Robert Mueller, the special prosecutor, concluded not a single American, no American, tried to collude or conspire with the um, Russia, uh, Russian effort to hijack the election. So that's the part that's been debunked, and that's the part that was most damaging to the beginning of the Trump presidency. There are many parts to your book. Uh, you mentioned that there are 150 scoops in your new book. Can you give us a flavor of some of them and the, the most sensational? Oh, absolutely. There's some really fun ones. The poll was one of them. A lot of people didn't know that Hillary couldn't have done the poll and that that was sort of the impetus for the Russia Steel dossier opposition research project. But there are many other very important, some that are important to the 2020 election. For instance, after Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014 and Joe Biden got the Ukraine portfolio, he had a very prominent uh, energy advisor by the name of Amos Hotstein, very well respected in Washington. And he began giving speeches uh, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, saying, we can't let Russia have energy monopolies because they use it as a geopolitical weapon. And that's, that's actually good advice and true. The only thing that Amos Hotstein didn't tell us at the time, but that we found in the FBI files that we had uh, obtained, Back in 07, 08, and 09, he was working for Rosatom, the nuclear energy company of Russia, the state-owned energy company of Russia, helping them try to create a monopoly in the United States, get a leg up in the uranium market here. Very successful work because the Russians got billions of dollars of contracts from the Obama administration. They also got um, the Uranium One purchase of uranium ore assets underneath our ground. And the, uh, the Clinton campaign helped them get technology through a place called Skokovo, which was an effort by the U.S. to help Russia build its own Silicon Valley. So the, uh, the, what we found out was that Hochstein was paid. He was a lobbyist or advisor, is a better word, I think, consultant. Uh, we, we put all those documents in the book, their ar archives. So before he was against Russia, he was for Russia trying to help. That's the sort we, we go through the book. There were lots of people, Republican and Democrats, who cashed in in the um, Russian reboot era and whose, whose roles have not been exposed before. That's part of the, I think, the most important developments in the book. Now, your book is saying the Russians, Russian operatives, in effect, pulled the wool over the eyes of the Obama administration. Was that through bribes, flattery, subterfuge, as we talk about the Russian reset policy? Right. Listen, there was the, the, it was a high-risk and high-reward effort that President Obama set out to do in 2009. Presumably his intentions were good at the start. Absolutely, their intentions were good at the start. They wanted to get a more peaceful relationship, and they thought that perestroika could be 
repeat it again, what we did with the Soviet Union when we brought Western culture and Western economy into the Soviet Union. It would cause uh, the Soviet collapse, and it would cause you know, Russia to be more friendly to the United States. In this case, Putin had a very different plan. The FBI was undercover inside the nuclear company Rosatom from 07 Ford. They were seeing exactly what uh, Vladimir Putin intended. He wanted to get a monopoly in the U.S. market on uranium so that nuclear fuel facilities and nuclear energy facilities in the United States would be dependent on Russian uh, nuclear energy for months and years to come. Uh, they also knew that the uh, company Rosatom was engaged in bribery. They actually recorded in 2010 a $50,000 suitcase full of cash going to the, the Russians from their FBI undercover operative, a guy named Doug Campbell. So the, the, what makes the story mystifying is good intentions or not. Once the Obama administration was warned that the company they were dealing with was corrupt and that uh, Putin's strategy was to create a, a weaker America by making it reliant on Russian nuclear fuel, the question is, why didn't they put a stop to it? And no one could answer that. Uh, there were, you know, we, have, we did lots of interviews, and the answer that we got from many Democrats who worked inside the administration, it turned out to be a bad gambit. We tried, and it failed, and uh, Vladimir Putin kind of won the battle. And so that, that is one of the premises of the book, and it's very carefully, very carefully documented. One of my favorite parts about the book is that more than 100 pages of the book are the footnotes with the underlying evidence. We documented in documents and interviews, every single fact, sentence by sentence, so that people wouldn't have to take our word. They could go look at the underlying documents and see for sure that what we said was, was in these documents. And so it's very meticulously researched. Seamus Bruner, my co-author, is a remarkable researcher. And, and we did it. You know, we tried to do as robust a job at building the confidence of the American people and what we have by being transparent. Every document is footnoted so you can see it for yourself. Yeah, the book was released July 14th. Nuclear bribes, Russian spies, and the Washington lies that enriched the Clinton and Biden dynasties. How rich did the Clintons and Bidens become from all of this activity? Yeah, it's a great question, right? We know that Bill Clinton got one of the largest known speech fees in his career, $500,000 in the spring of 2010, from a Russian bank at the time when all of these deals were pending. Uh, we know that there were tens of millions of dollars um, that were committed to the Clinton Foundation from people interested in the Russian nuclear energy uh, business during uh, during this time frame. Most of them went to the Clinton Foundation or to his Clinton Global Initiative. That included American firms that were advising the Russians. It included Russian entities. It included people in the mining industry. So tens of millions of dollars of commitments were, were made. Um, one of the biggest benefactors of the um, – I'm sorry, one of the be biggest beneficiaries of these nuclear deals that the Obama administration made with Russia were American utilities, utilities that uh, have nuclear energy power plants that supply electricity to Americans because Russian uranium was cheaper for them. And when they got the deals in place, when, when they became reliant on Russian fuel for decades to come, uh, they donated $10 million to the Obama Foundation after, after the deals were done to seed the uh, Obama presidential library. And, uh, and then when the, when the policy failed and Ukraine was invaded and Ukraine became the new focal point of our Eurasia policy in the Obama administration, Joe Biden was named the point per person in Ukraine. And uh, he went to Ukraine in April of 2014, shortly after the invasion, and said, the way we're going to make Ukraine safer, the way we're going to push back 
Russian influence in Kiev is we're going to build a natural gas infrastructure for Ukraine so it doesn't have to buy Russian gas anymore and it could be independent of Russia and free from the geopolitical influences of Vladimir Putin. Well, he gave that speech in April. Not two weeks later, uh, Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, well, uh, got the seat on the Burisma Natural Gas Board, one of the companies that were the focal point of that natural gas initiative. How much did Hunter Biden make over those years? At least $3 million, according to records that the FBI uh, have made public in a, in a criminal investigation. So uh, Hunter Biden got $3 million. Obama Library got $10 million. The Clinton Foundation got tens of millions. Bill Clinton got 500000 There's a pretty good run of money all around uh, the people involved in this policy. So kind of a pay for play. Yeah, I mean, that's the concern, right? Which is, and this is what, you know, this is what Americans have been concerned about Washington all the time. There's a revolving door. People like uh, Amos Hochstein and others go back and forth from private industry to government. And those government contacts they have are very lucrative to the private sector, whether the Russians, the Ukrainians, or someone else. And so pay-to-play, pay to influence peddling, uh, getting wealthy on your government contacts, that's the system that Americans uh, wanted Donald Trump to destroy when he came in in 2016. I can tell you we're in 2020, and the system is alive and well. The revolving door still works, and, and people are still cashing in on their government contacts. And the lobbying, the Washington lobbying, is as robust today as it was before Donald Trump took uh, took president, so or became president. So uh, it's still there. The swamp, as President Trump calls it, is still alive. But I think these stories in the uh, fallout book are examples of why people get upset with Washington and the state of things in our nation's capital. Remember the controversy surrounding Donald Trump reportedly asking the president of Ukraine during a telephone call to investigate the Bidens, Joe and Hunter, and then all hell broke loose and impeachment was suddenly in the air for President Trump. Here's how John Solomon explains it. Well, yeah, what, what really happened was, um, and, and we, what, we, what we lay out in the book is that is there's sort of a domino effect that uh, if you trace the beginning of the origins of the, of the Russia and Ukraine scandals, they start with the reboot. The reboot leads to the fail. Ukraine leads to Joe Biden getting involved in Ukraine. Uh, uh, Hillary Clinton gets ready for 2016 and realizes Russia is a, is, a, is a political guillotine over her head. And so she create, hires Christopher Steele to neutralize YouTube. Christopher Steele walks his information, quite to the surprise of the Clinton campaign, into the FBI. And that launches a criminal investigation that becomes the Russia collusion investigation. And then as the Russia collusion allegations are beginning to fall apart, as um, Mueller is about to conclude that there was no conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Moscow, um, uh, Rudy Giuliani goes to Ukraine and discovers, hey, Joe Biden's son was cashing in on the Ukraine policy in the aftermath of the reboot. And he brings that to the president's attention. The president, in a call with one of the uh, with the new Ukraine president, President Zelensky, Last summer says, "Hey, could you look at these allegations? I don't know if they're true or not." And that's what leads to the <laughs> to the impeachment proceedings. So they're all interconnected. It was like the perfect storm of dom political scandal dominoes falling one after the other after the other. I'm curious, John. How do you think your latest revelations and your recap of events that have happened recently 
will shake up public opinion? Will it move the dial politically in one direction or another? Will it have any role in the election this year? You know, it's always hard to know what an election is going to pivot on this far out, right? Uh, uh, COVID and the economy and those things are, seem to be much more pressing issues. I, I think if you look at a poll we did at justthenews.com just a couple of weeks ago, there is growing evidence that most people believe there was some wrongdoing in the Russia collusion investigation, that it was a political dirty trick. I think about 60% of the people, if I remember correctly, in the poll. So when you look at that sort of uh, dynamic, you know, it's already in the back of people's heads, and those who believe it are likely to find affirmation in the book. I think the real question that, of what happens is that we lay out in the book pretty substantial evidence of wrongdoing by the FBI and the Justice Department false submission of evidence, false documents, false statements to the Congress, false statements to the American public. And the, if John Durham, the prosecutor, is before the election, if he charges some of the people that were involved in the Russia collusion investigation inside the FBI, the Justice Department, the intelligence community, uh, that could have a profound effect on the election, depending how good the evidence is. Remember, Durham is a Democrat from Connecticut, so uh, he's like the perfect person to investigate this because his political uh, pedigree is Democrat, but his mission is to investigate Democrats. If he does bring uh, charges of wrongdoing, that could have an effect on the election. If not, I think what we bring to light uh, is a more you know cohesive version of the story so people can see it moment by moment, understand its origins, and it just goes into the larger filter of what we've already learned about the failings of the FBI and the Obama administration in, in that scandal. Should that give the public pause, corruption in the FBI? Well, you know, that's a great question. In Chapter 10 of the book, I, 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 uh, Seamus and I talk about the idea that the era from 2009 to 2019 was a significant era, not just for all the things that happened, but also for a change in culture. And the cultural change is that institutions like the news media uh, the FBI, the State Department, the Justice Department, the intelligence community had historically stayed out of politics. They had been apolitical, neutral. And uh, you were, these were institutions that you came to uh, uh, assume were going to tell you the truth. You just had the assumption that they had no skin in the game of politics and they were going to tell us the truth. But between 2009 and 19, you have an extraordinary record of news organizations. The New York Times, for instance, uh, falsely reporting major allegations on the front page and never never once retracting them. That That's very concerning. In fact, on Friday, the Senate Judiciary Committee released new documents showing the seminal story, the seminal story that the New York Times wrote on its front page in February of 2017 that really drove the collusion narrative. The FBI had done its own analysis of the story, and it found all nine major facts in the story, all nine major claims in the story, were blatantly false. That, that gives an example of how bad the media failed. We now know that the FBI falsified evidence, changed the document to hide the fact that Carter Page, who they were investigating, wasn't a Russian stooge. He was a CIA asset helping spy on the Russians. And some of the events the FBI was presenting to the FISA court to, to uh, authenticate or seek approval for uh, surveillance and, and undercover spying of Carter Page were actually events by Carter Page to help the CIA, not help the Russians. They falsified a document. We know from the Inspector General that the intelligence community and the FBI knowingly and willfully and exceedingly multiple times misled the judges in the court 
by failing to disclose flaws in their case, making false representations in their case. These are things that Americans did not come to expect from their FBI, from their news media, from the State Department, from the Intelligence Committee. So the decade of deceit, as we call it in that chapter, is consequential. And perhaps the single biggest tactical change that occurs in that decade is that information warfare, things that we've done and learned in our defense community, how we can create psychological warfare against our enemies uh, by creating false realities. That's something that the military is very good at if you want to create a coup or or destabilize a regime. We developed in decades of work these these false reality tactics that can create something real even though it's not. Those tactics were used and employed inside the United States on American soil to create the false reality that Donald Trump and the Russians had colluded together when, in fact, all, all of the evidence, uh, all of it, uh, pointed to the FBI and the CIA telling them there was no such conspiracy. Very troubling uh, development if that's allowed to stand. If people are not punished for doing those things, the new norm will be that whatever administration's in power will be tempted to use the FBI, the CIA, to create false realities to go after their political uh, enemies. And that, to us, in the book, is one of the biggest fallout of this uh, of this uh, scandal. We need to make sure people are punished and the temptation to use intelligence and law enforcement resources for politics is diminished and, and, and made painful. So that, that's what we hope will happen at the end of the book. We hear and read that there were many people in high places didn't want Donald Trump to become president. What were they afraid of? Well, listen, he talked about disrupting the entire system. Uh, throwing out the status quo in Washington threatens a lot of people who make millions and billions of dollars off that status quo. And, and uh, some of the things he overtly talked about, he was going to reverse the Iran deal. Well, that made Iran and those in America who supported the nuclear deal uh, nervous. He said he was going to take a different tact on Russia. For those who were neocons on the right or uh, appeasers on the left that wanted a, a softer relationship with uh, Russia, or a hardcore relationship with Russia, Donald Trump's uh, um, approach to foreign policy was a threat to the status quo. And so I think you see in this book particularly the extraordinary consequences and also the nexus between Iran and Russia. When the FBI uh, uh, undercover informant starts telling the FBI, hey, the Russians inside Rosatom, the nuclear company, are helping Iran illicitly continue its nuclear program against, uh, you know, against international sanctions, the FBI briefs the Obama administration, nothing happens. They don't even reveal it to Congress. So uh, uh, why? Because they wanted that Iran deal to go through. They didn't want any uh, negative things to go through. Well, uh, that's the sort of stuff that Donald Trump, Michael Flynn, his national security advisor, were going to put into the public light, going to expose. So stopping him for a large number of constituencies in Washington was a top strategic goal. And, you know, politics is hardball these days, and uh, winning elections, is, there's nothing illegal about that. The difference here is that we went to a new extent. We went to the extent of using the FBI in a political opposition research project in a political dirty trick, and that's something that is new and perhaps very troubling to most Americans. Some people reading your book will say, hey, John and Seamus are partisan hacks, would they write the same about a Republican candidates in office or party members? How do you respond to that? Well, if you look at my history, 
uh, I have been writing the same stories about the FBI for 25 years, regardless of who's president. One of my seminal series of stories that have won lots of accolades over the years and lots of awards was the work I did after 9-11, showing how the George W. Bush administration failed to connect the dots inside the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, before 9-11. Almost all the evidence of a plot to uh, fly airplanes into buildings in America was sitting in CIA, FBI files, and President uh, George W. Bush was briefed in August that there was likely to be an imminent attack on American soil, and they slept through it. They failed to connect the dots. Masawi in Minnesota, which they had in their custody, Arab pilots training, including the hijackers training at U.S. flight schools in that summer. So I have done work that uh, had profound consequences on the the W. Bush administration, the Clinton administration, H.W. Bush's administration. As an investigative reporter, I'm an equal opportunist. I try to write stories that matter to the American conscience and to the American people, regardless of who's in power. And quite frankly, I would have wrote the exact same stories if Donald Trump was the one hijacking the FBI and trying to harm Barack Obama. I would have written the exact exact same thing. So um, I think when people look back at my record, what I say is look at 30 years of reporting. Republicans and Democrats alike shudder at, at the work I've done because I've been an equal opportunist. There's an anecdote in the book that actually affirms that. Uh, I think it's in Chapter 7 or 8. We talk about CFIUS, the, the uh, Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States. That's the body that approved why Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State and Obama was President, uh, the Uranium One transaction, giving Iran, the assets of uranium ore under American soil, one of the controversial things that you know happened. Well, earlier in the, the book, Hillary Clinton took up a big wave of concern about how CFIUS was acting under George W. Bush's administration. They were about to sell uh, a, a very strategic shipping port in California to Dubai, and it was my reporting in 2004 and five at the Associated Press with my colleague Ted Brightus that exposed the Dubai port deal and the lack of concentration on CFIUS, and it was Hillary Clinton citing my reporting, objecting to George W. Bush's work on the, on the Dubai ports issue. So in the book, we give examples ourselves of Democrats using my very reporting to, to raise very serious wrongdoing questions or security questions with Republicans. I think my record over 30 years is pretty consistent. I'm an equal opportunist. If there's something wrong, that the American people should know about as an investigative reporter. I'm going to write it, whether Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama or George W. Bush is president. The way a good reporter should do it. After the break, John Solomon has some mind-blowing insights on the state of the media, the coming presidential election, and he shares a fascinating scoop on Vladimir Putin. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. I asked what kind of family she wanted. She said... A family like yours. Learn more about adopting a teen at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. My guest is John Solomon, co-author with Seamus Bruner of Fallout. We spend some time in the book talking about the state of media. One of the things that's most troubling, think about what just happened on Friday. So just three days ago, uh, there was a... um, uh, a release of documents showing that the New York Times had nine factual errors in a single story. The New York Times has neither corrected that story nor 
fixed that story or retracted that story. Normally, retraction is the normal vehicle for a false and accurate story. We've spent more time watching New York Times reporters and, quite frankly, every reporter opine on Twitter and on talking head shows, uh, giving their opinions, which Americans don't want. At the same time, they haven't done the things that are endemic and necessary for journalism, like correcting false stories or sticking to a neutral voice. And I, we, we write in the 10th chapter how important it is that re- news media return to a neutral voice. Everybody has too many opinions in journalism today. Well, we weren't hired to give people opinions. We were hired to give facts. We're not there to indoctrinate. We're there to inform. And I think the American media, mm-hmm. in the aftermath of Russia, needs to look back and do some serious introspection about what it's gotten wrong because it was a culprit in the false story that became Russia collusion. John, isn't that part of the problem for the public grappling with information and making up their opinions? Bifurcated media, partisan media, on one side of conservative media and the other right. rooting. If there's no middle ground or there's no media presenting all of the facts in an objective way, it seems, to some people. So how do we get out of that? Well, that's a great uh, question. And so I have long argued, I've been anathema to many of my colleagues in journalism because I've been preaching for 25 years. There's no such thing as objectivity in journalism. It's a false figure. Every decision a reporter makes, what's the headline, what's the picture, what quote do I use, who do I interview, who do I not interview, uh, where, where do I place the story on the front page or in the newscast, those are all subjective decisions. So we should get out of the idea that we can be objective. What we can be is fair. We can be balanced, we can be accurate, we can be precise, and most importantly, we can be neutral. We don't try to tilt the story so that it benefits Donald Trump or hurts Donald Trump, benefits Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden, hurts Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. That lack of neutrality, that lack of balance, that lack of accuracy and precision has been one of the biggest um, concerns that has ailed uh, Americans about the state of journalism. If you look at the recent Pew study, and I don't have it in front of me, but I seem to recall the American news institutions have a favorability rating below 20%. If we were politicians, we'd be dead. Um, We've earned that because we've been given opinions and bad facts and erroneous stories and acting like a bunch of schmucks on air for about 10 years. We need to reexamine ourselves, stop the silliness, get back to facts, trust the American people to make up their mind after they get their facts, stop stop trying to use our perch as journalists to make up the American people's mind. It's not our job to make opinions or make decisions for Americans. It's our decision to inform. And that's why I started my own news site about three, four months called Just the News. There are no op-eds. There are no opinions. Straight news, straight facts. Most importantly, we created a new tool called Dig In. Every fact that we have uh, is available to the uh, reader to see separate in the separate tab. Every document, every interview, every audio, every video, every tweet, <coughs> excuse me, every um, link we have, uh, it's available for the American public to read separate of our story. They don't have to take our word for it. They can check for themselves. That's become very powerful. If you go mm. to Just the News, you, you Just talk to the Just news. the News readers. Mm. <coughs> Just the People News, are reading that section. Okay, great. John, we'll get back to the book real quickly, but where do you see the election going? Where do you see the chips falling? Well, listen, I, uh, I I never run a campaign, so I, I'm a terrible prognosticator. But what people tell me is that this election is going to turn on four or five issues. One of those issues is the pandemic. <clears throat> Will it get better? Will it get worse? If it's getting better in the fall, the pressure on Donald Trump eases. If it's getting worse in the fall, 
the attractiveness of Joe Biden as an alternative on the pandemic becomes larger. I think another question is going to come down to because President Trump has planted the question and because Joe Biden has a long history, long before this year, of putting his foot in his mouth or stumbling over his words, will be, is Donald Trump, um, Joe Biden, uh, got his stuff together? Is he, is he still, you know, uh, able to put words together? Is he able to say what he means? He's had some tough moments, right? Mm-hmm. He had the you ain't black unless you vote for me comment, which had a tremendously negative impact. impact. He's had moments where he stumbled over his words or confused what office he's running for. So that's going to be a second issue. Third issue will be um, this issue of uh, anarchy in America. Are the, uh, if Trump can portray the Democrats as anarchists rather than protesters, he may get a leg up for people who are worried about safety, particularly suburban women. If Democrats can, can uh, con- uh, convince people that these protests are legitimate because there are serious concerns on the ground and, and uh, about race and fairness in America, then the Democrats will win. And then I think one of the most important things we, we as reporters never talk about, elections are won by ground games. Who's going to get out the most votes in an election where early voting and mail-in balloting is going to be historically high? Whoever wins that race almost certainly will win the, the election. Uh, mail-in balloting, absentee balloting, get out the vote. Uh, that's going to determine the election on the ground and the key 12 states that will decide this election. And those are the things I'd be watching for. Do you think there's a large, silent majority who have watched the recent riots on the streets who are saying this is just you know, simply terrible? Yeah, I just came back from Wisconsin and Middle America, one of those states that's in play and obviously was decisive in the 2016 election. And every day, America, I was about an hour outside of the city of Milwaukee for a week, and everybody was talking about flag burning and toppling statues and disdain for it and that it was unnecessary and that it didn't seem to be about race or police brutality. It seemed to be about destroying the America that they had all, all worked so hard as farmers and shop workers and welders and plumbers to build. And I was struck by that sentiment because I don't have, you know, when you're in D.C., you don't get the same sense of things. Uh, I do believe that if these recent protests and the level of violence and anarchy and the talk of defunding the police has hit a chord with Americans in a negative way, and that it may not be showing up in polls yet, but it may show up when we get to the ballot back in, in November. But again, I think the pandemic has a big part of it. Get out the vote has a big part of it. Democrats are highly motivated to knock Donald Trump out of office, and so that could be a good uh, inspiring uh, tactic to uh, get out the vote. We'll just have to see how many people turn up on Election Day and in the absentee ballots. We'll just uh, look at fallout uh, quickly here. You've got some really good reviews, advanced praise from President Trump. Sean Hannity had great praise for us, Greg Jarrett. So it's got to be a thumping good read. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, the ones I'm most proud of are some of the intelligence people, like Daniel Hoffman, former CIA station chief in Moscow. He, he, he says how important this book is and also how important understanding the true intentions of Russia is, that we got it wrong the first time. I think the intelligence community had long inspired me to do this work. work. One of the stories I tell, uh, the reason I started reporting on uh, the Russia scandal, specifically that it was uh, a scandal in reverse, meeting that it wasn't the original allegations, it was the wrongdoing of the FBI that became the story, was that two members of the intelligence community showed up at my house one night about 11 o'clock at night, pulled in my driveway, there was a blue sedan car with government plates on it by my mailbox. These two guys come out and they say, hey, there's a 
political dirty trick going on in the intelligence community needs to be exposed because if we lose these tools, things like FISA, surveillance, and NSA intercepts, uh, because we abuse them for politics, we won't be able to keep you safe in the next terrorist attack or the next counterintelligence threat. So my motivation from the beginning was to make sure that the intelligence community did what was right, kept its tools for what we are threatened by, and didn't abuse these tools for, for things such as politics or dirty tricks. And um, I think the endorsements of people, many people in the intelligence community, uh, are well, the things I'm most proud of because they're the frontline operators that keep us safe from terrorists and, and untoward spies. And they, many of them in those intelligence communities, were deeply concerned by what went on in the Russia collusion case. So to me, those are the real heroes, the people who sit on the front lines, the Doug Campbells who inform and risk their lives to keep us safe. Uh, those are the real heroes of this of this book. So two members of the intelligence community showed up at your doorstep. And <laughs> they did. Wow. At 11 o'clock yep, at night. At you... 11 o'clock at night. That's how concerned they were. I mean, they didn't know me from Boo. I didn't know them. In fact, they never gave me their name. But what they told me that night, uh, I, up until March of 2017, I really hadn't reported on a lot of smoke, no fire. I don't think we're going to find collusion. So I didn't, I didn't focus on it. I kind of dismissed it. And then when two gentlemen showed up at my home and said, hey, fella, uh, you better get digging. You, you've been writing about FISA abuses. There's some real FISA abuses going on you don't know about. Get digging. That's what motivated me. Who do you think sent them to your doorstep? They came on their own? I do own? not know. They may have gone, may have been sent. I don't know. They didn't give enough information for me to, to divine their intentions other than what they said, which was uh, at that time in 2017, the FISA law was about to be renewed at the end of the year. They were afraid that what had happened had been exposed, that they might lose access to these very important counterterrorism, counterintelligence tools. So I take them at the word that was their motivation. They certainly were right. There was a dirty trip being carried out, a political opposition research project being carried out inside the FBI and the intelligence community, and that has inspired me for the last few years to keep reporting and to get every last fact out to the American people. Is your life ever threatened? Do you take personal abuse, nasty phone calls, <laughs> emails yeah. from Democratic operatives saying, knock it off, John? It has happened a long time, and you just ignore it, right? You know, if there's a real security threat, you talk to the police. There have been a couple times in my life a long time ago, uh, back in the 2000s when I was doing some mob stories about the mob and corruption in the mob, where I got really legitimate threats, including death threats that required the police to get involved. But in most days, you know what? You go on undeterred. You shake it off. There are times when I've gone to a Lowe's or a Home Depot, and people come up to me and say, thank you for what you're doing, or I really hate you, and you're a terrible person for writing these stories and that's just part of the game you shake it off and you go back and write your next story i've always subscribed to the theory that you're only as good as your next story so stay focused on the future not not on what's in the past any one last bombshell from one of the many scoops in the book you want to share with us that we may not have covered i think there's a really delicious uh um episode that i think tells us it's a small anecdote that uh documented very well in the book that tells us something much bigger and that was that in the 2012, 2013, 2014 timeframe, the FBI seemed to be very concerned about the Obama administration's march toward an Iran nuclear deal. They were so concerned, you know, they were getting great information out of their informant inside Russia about what the Iranians were doing, what the Russians were doing to help Iran. They saw, I think, an illicit triangle of assistance going to Iran that threatened national security. And so, they concocted this really sensational idea 
They were going to lure Vladimir Putin to the United States to go to the Kentucky Derby and then to go bear hunting. It's one of his favorite pastimes. And the way they did it is they got their undercover informant to go to the Democratic governor of Kentucky at the time, a guy named Bashir, and get him to proclaim that Donald Trump, oh, excuse me, that uh, Vladimir Putin was a Kentucky colonel. That's the highest civilian honor a civilian can get in the state of Kentucky. And they got the certificate, and it said Vladimir Putin. We put it in the book. You can see it. Vladimir Putin is an honorary Kentucky colonel of the state of Kentucky, and they, they used this gimmick to try to lure Putin here to the United States so they could spy on him. Who was he talking to? What would he say to the nuclear energy executives when he was in private? Because they wanted to bring to the president of the United States, President Obama, this proof that Russia and Iran were thumbing their nose at the sanctions and continuing to build an illicit um, weapons program right under the Americans' eyes, even as um, uh, the Obama administration did that, uh, did the deal. Uh, and that's how concerned they were. They, they concocted a Kentucky colonel uh, citation and to try to lure Vladimir Putin here. I think it, it speaks volumes. These were concerns you didn't hear voiced at the time, but now you can see in contemporaneous documents and memos that we uncovered. So I, I think that's a fun scoop. That it's a little mini scoop that I think so that's speaks there. volumes about the intelligence community's concern. Because Putin didn't show up. He, he, he didn't fall for it, right? No, he didn't. He, fi- he figured it out pretty quickly. You know, it was too good to be true that he was going to be given the highest civilian honor in Kentucky, so he blew it off. Putin was a former USSR KGB, so he's old school. He, right. He was the KGB's chief officer in um, East Germany uh, mm. before the wall fell. And so uh, there's a, the early part of the book, chapters one and two, really lay out the life of Vladimir Putin and how he really operates. Um, this is a man that his entire world was formed by a Cold War, mm. and he never really lost that lens of the Cold War. And even today, I, we believe in many ways by the evidence that we put in our book that he's still fighting a war. He wants to restore Russia to its great, its era of greatness under Peter the Great, and that motivates him. And he wants he sees America as a frenemy who needs to be humbled by uh, geopolitical dominance, and so. Uh, a tough competitor, and if you're mm. any president, whether you're Obama, uh, 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 Trump, or Biden, uh, you have to take Vladimir Putin seriously. He is a very crafty character. Has he met his match in Donald Trump? Hard to say, right? History will tell us. Sir Donald Trump has been surprisingly hard on uh, Russia. The sanctions that he imposed are tougher than what Obama imposed. More importantly, I think the biggest thing that has angered Putin about Trump is that Trump did something that Obama had chosen not to do, and that's give lethal aid to Ukraine, give a weaponry uh, that could help Ukraine deter another incursion by the Russians. And I think that alienated uh, Putin a lot. We write about it in the book. Um, but, you know, history will tell who's, whose approach is right. There's two, two approaches here. Get tough on Putin, try to win Putin's heart. So far, neither of them has fully worked. Fallout, nuclear bribes, Russian spies, and the Washington lies that enriched the Clinton and Biden dynasties. You can buy it anywhere. They sell good books. John, it was a pleasure talking with you. Great read, great book by you and your co-author, Seamus Bruner. Let's catch up again. Thank you for your time. Thank you, John. Very much appreciated. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 
That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.